Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to another show, another episode of Around the Coin. Today, I interviewed the CEO of Hyper Exponential, Amrit Santharasenan. We had a great conversation. He actually runs another podcast, too, called Startup Dads. Uh, Hyper Exponential is an analytical technology company. Amrit was working in the uh, insurance industry previous to this in the specialty insurance. So he would work on things like insuring the SpaceX rockets or massive floods, things that are really difficult with not a lot of data, as he called it, weird data. And so we dove into learning about the insurance industry, specifically the weird sector of it, what happens in the the very unusual uh, existential risk and how to assess that and the future of uh, crypto and the crypto insurance. It's a really engaging conversation. I, I learned a lot about Emery. He really is a, a master of insurance. So this was a highly educational conversation and a real enjoyable guest today with Emery. So I hope you enjoy. And as always, this this show is sponsored by Otter Labs. HireOtter.com is a great option if you are looking for engineers, developers for your startup. HireOtter.com has basically any technology you want. They focus on Argentina and South America, so it's great for U.S. companies because it's on the same time zone. They've got very affordable rates for the developers and uh, overall great team to work with. Uh, Also, we have as a sponsor Redeem, spelled R-E-D-E-E-M.com. It's a great place to trade Bitcoin for gift cards, uh, wine. It's a it's a, a peer-to-peer crypto exchange. So check it out at redeem.com. And with that, I hope you enjoy the show. I give you Amarit, CEO of Hyper Exponential. All right. We uh, we're live. Mr. Amrit Santharasenin, CEO of Hyper Exponential. Really excited to have you on. We were talking a little bit pre-show about, um, maybe we'll just kick it off here. You have your own podcast as well. So you run a startup, Hyper Exponential, and you're a, a recent father, and you run a podcast at the intersection, talking about the intersection of, is it being a parent or just running a startup and, and family life? Or tell me a little bit about that. And welcome. Sure thing. Yeah, well, firstly, Mike, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, really excited to be here. And yeah, my, my podcast, Startup Dads, um, it's about the intersection of running a business, a startup, and having a family. Because I set up HX uh, to 2017, and uh, back end of uh, last year, I became a, a dad. Um, and I realized very quickly uh, that A, both of these things are really hard. 
B, it's really hard to do both of them at the same time. Uh, and C, I learned huge amounts from uh, uh, between the two. So being a dad has taught me a lot about running a business and running a business has taught me a lot about being a dad. And I, I think that if you think about that, that's reasonably obvious, uh, but you wouldn't have thought about it straight away. So, you know, having to learn new things every single week, dealing with unexpected surprises, dealing with rapid change, you know, things being, you know, feeling the same, but being different over and over as, as things grow. Yeah. Huge common themes between both. I thought, you know what, let's get some other founders who've become dads uh, or entrepreneurs or VCs um, uh, and talk about it. Uh, and that's how the podcast uh, kind of came about. Ah, nice. So would you, so pretend we're on your podcast for a second. Would you typically ask me, I, I'm a, a father now. I have a nine month old son. Wicked. What, what sorts of things do you dive into? Or what can I, what can I learn from you? Or maybe anyone else is listening about the intersection. Cause I also sure, run a startup. Sure and thing. I'm a father. Yeah. So, you know, the questions I like to, I, I, I like to look at founders, you know, one of my favorite things about the podcast is, you know, you talk to a founder of a business and you learn so much uh, about, uh, uh, you just learn something new every time. And, you know, normally when I'm on the podcast, I look at a founder and every founder has got a different journey. Uh, and I think a little bit about what makes them special just from what I've read about them. And we talk, so, you know, I'll give you a good example. I had an amazing, um, founder from the States from a, a business called Barbell Logic a few weeks ago. His name's Matt Reynolds, uh, amazing guy. And he was, I was just talking to him about, you know, he's built a business around strength training and strength training is about doing hard things and how hard things change you. And I was like, well, you know, strength training, fatherhood, running a business, they're, they're all hard things and they all change you. So we just talked a little bit about, you know, the refining quality of doing hard things. And then I had an amazing founder just today, actually, I recorded an episode who set up a business when he was 15. Uh, actually, it's an ed tech business. So helping people uh, in the education space uh, and then kept it alive during business during uh, kept his business alive during his studies and then brought it to life. And now it's a multinational business uh, serving, you know, um, multi, you know, hundreds of clients around the world. I was like, well, talk to me about starting early um, and talk to me about the, you know, different people have families and businesses early. And, you know, um, it's amazing how, when you talk to founders, you just see these themes in their lives. Uh, and it, it's been the, you know, just an amazing experience to talk to inspiring people about, you know, and see the, the side of their lives that no one, um, uh, re really hears about. I think you see so much and, you know, startups are particularly famous for just talking about the successes, right? You hear about the stripes, you hear about, you know, Uber and, you, you know, or, you know, all of the companies, that sort of thing. And, often the founders are incredibly good and you know that probably partly what makes them great founders about talking about the journey just being so linear or, or exponential right uh, but being smooth and mm. it's great to just hear about you know from founders who to to hear about the slightly more bumpy rough around the edges the bits of life that refine you right and fatherhood's definitely mm -hmm. part of that so yeah 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 yeah. Great. No, I think, I think you're right on that facade. Like it's actually becoming a little, I'm becoming a little numb to the announcements of fundraising, fundraising, especially <laughs> it gets yeah. to me a little bit because it's like, here's the, here's the message. We just raised 10 million at a you know, hundred million dollar valuation. And this is just the beginning. And we're, we have the amazing list of investors and it doesn't matter the names of the investors. They're all amazing. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that's great. I, I almost think like, are we obligated to do that as founders to just kind of sell sell like you know there's a certain amount of 
like I remember we used to hire a PR, we hired a PR agency to do interviews after we raised. And it was like the PR agency was the one who kind of planted the idea that, oh, we have to answer these questions in this specific way. And they were the experts. We were their early founders. So we just took their advice and we were very conservative with everything. But I see some companies not take that route. And I, and I, I think that's, that's good. I think if everyone kind of plays this vanilla game, we're all sort of kidding ourselves a little bit. Um, I almost think the honest raise would be like, yeah, we're, we just raised 10 million. We're not exactly sure how we're going to spend it. We know we're going in this yeah. general direction and, uh, we hope we're successful, you know, come along with us and support us. And <laughs> that would be the more honest approach. Um, yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I, I think there's so much. It's amazing in the world where, and I suppose, you know, uh, again, it's fascinating. You'll have a real strong sense of this as well. The economy right now uh, around the economy in general, huge surging crypto, uh, you know, the crypto whales, uh, huge surging uh, stock market. There's so much money out there and it's become so, uh, so, um, it's just become part of the course for people to boast about vanity metrics, how much money they're setting on fire, how much money they've raised. And I think, you know what, don't get me wrong, building great businesses takes risk. It takes spending money. It, uh, it takes huge amounts of judgment. But there's definitely, I think in the world we're in right now with the abundance of money, I think it definitely seems to, as you just rightly um uh, as you rightly pointed out, it seems to kind of um, drown out the fact that there's lots of uncertainty and we don't know it. None of us know exactly what we're going to do with all that money, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't be a startup if it were, we knew exactly what we were going to do with all the money that we raised and exactly how it's going to pan out. So I'm totally with yeah. you. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, your journey. So you started this podcast, you have a son or a, is it a son? I, maybe I've seen uh, that. A, a girl, a baby girl. A da- yeah. daughter. Oh, congratulations. Daughter, What's yeah. her name? Thank you. Her name's Evie. Evie, beautiful name. And tell me about uh, Hyper Exponential for a, for a second. You started this company in 2017, is that right? And what was the yeah, yeah, you're bang on. into that? Sure thing. So yeah, set up HX 2017. I'm a, a, an actuary by training. So my job for most of my career has been to use data to help people make financial decisions. And I've worked in the insurance industry my, my whole career. Um, I ended up working in a really random section of the insurance industry called the specialty insurance sector. It's a word that doesn't even exist for most people. It's speciality without one of the eyes. Um, and, you know, I, I found myself, I, I fell into this and it was actually, the, you know, again, insurance generally gets a really bad press for being really boring. And to be fair, like lots of industries, there are really boring pockets of it. But to cut a long story short, I ended up insuring things like SpaceX, right? Working on how to ensure that like SpaceX's rockets not working or like really wild things like Kanye West canceling his concerts or mm. one of my favorites of all time was um, the Valencian football team. So the soccer team, if they got relegated, they would lose their TV rights and they could buy an insurance policy against like losing money because they got relegated. So like really weird and wonderful risks and really weird and wonderful data sets. And it turns out this industry, it's actually a $700 billion industry, right? Mm. Uh, Don't get me wrong. It's not all Kanye West and football players and all those sorts of things, but there's a lot of weird and wonderful risk. And I think, you know, if we think a little bit about the world we're in now, you know, look at the crypto economy, look at the new, the new types of financial risk, that we're seeing, right? There's just huge amounts of this risk and it's hard to analyze. It's hard to ensure. It's hard to manage the risk. That was my job. And to cut a long story short, 
in a few years ago, I, I got quite senior in my career, and uh, I should probably at this point say, a long time before all of this, I studied software engineering at university. So I'm an enthusiastic, amateur, terrible, but very enthusiastic software engineer um, in the 15 minutes of spare time I have a week. Um, and, I, you know, basically I was like, right, I work for a big company. I've got a really, I've got an eight-figure budget. Uh, I, I've got the opportunity to build a really great modern way to analyze these risks. And I've got the, uh, uh, the technical engineering background. And I just found that there's no software for this, right? The nature of these risks, the data is weird and wonderful. It's a bit crappy, to be honest with you. You know, if you're insuring <laughs> SpaceX or, or the Valencian football team, you don't get a beautiful data dump or a data feed. Yeah. Yeah. The data changes all the time. It's different every month. The risks change every day. Um, I mean, and actually, how, most of the world's data is like this. Yeah. Uh, how is it? I mean, I'm imagining, tell me if, if I were to sit down, I would look at SpaceX and say, well, how much does the rocket cost? What's their track record on shooting these things? How quickly are they improving? Maybe rocket launches historically. Uh, you have some ballpark that's like this thing's got a you know 6% chance of blowing up. It's worth $100 million. Is that, I mean, is it just kind of back of the napkin math or is there more data you, you're looking at than yeah. that? Yeah. So, the, so, you know, Mike, there you are, you in uh, t three minutes, you don't need to spend seven years doing those actuarial exams because you've reasonably summarized it uh, in one go. Um, <laughs> what I would say, <laughs> you know, you're bang on. It's huge amounts of it is exactly as you say, nap napkin math. But you know, the biggest thing, and I think people don't realize this, is when you don't have good data, what you need to do is try lots of things. Yeah. And I think this is one of those things is that when you don't have good data sets, what you don't do is build one really, really complicated model with loads of rubbish assumptions and stack them all on top of each other and build a big house of cards. What you actually do is you try loads and loads of different things. You try lots and lots of different napkins and you see what works in the market. You see what makes sense. And you do lots of kind of backfitting from the prices you're hearing from other companies, from any extra data sets, from engineering reports that you might get. So it's a really witch's brew, like a heady cocktail of mm. different data sets that are changing all the time and lots of experimentation. Um, uh, and sorry, this is a very Amrit way. People who listen to the podcast who know me, but like, this is such an Amrit answer, a long way of going about it. Basically, I wanted to build a platform that allowed us to do these sorts of things, rapid experimentation, rapid trying, you know, not time spent on software, but time spent on modeling. So our mm. software takes away all the pain and suffering of, of, of what's involved in building an enterprise grade platform with all the security, redundancy, databases, all the things that quite frankly, the, the mathematicians don't care about. Yeah, they don't want to deal with databases or penetration testing or vulnerability analysis. What they want to do is try out an algorithm, get it to market quickly, see whether it works and change it mm. if it doesn't. And that's what our platform does. We've got a SaaS platform called Renew. It's used by some of the biggest insurers in the world now. Um, and they're using it to build models and try them out and get them to clients. And if they don't work, they change them quickly. And our platform allows them to do that super, super fast. Got it. I, I'm, I'm so, I don't, I know kind of, uh, just enough about this to be to be inquisitive, but uh, I want to ask you a couple questions uh, just because I'm so fascinated by it. So insurance, insurance is like I have to. You, do you know off the top of your head how much money is is insurance companies have that they use to back the policies? Just off, is that a well known yeah, market yeah. number? Yeah, so the yeah, so the global industry, the the global insurance inter industry across all premium that goes into all the policies is $6 trillion. It's a big industry. Yeah. And do they keep that money in banks or are they reinvesting that into the market typically? 
That's a good question. So depending on the country, the regu- insurance is highly regulated, right? So what I can't do mm. is I can't go, do you know what? I'm going to set up Amra Insurance Company and I'm pretty sure if I charge enough money, I'm going to have enough money to pay out my claims. You have to have enough money to deal with like the really bad scenarios. They call it like a capital base to mm. deal with the, the really bad scenarios. And, and what most regulators um, will make you do is take a lot of money, more than like the premium, like, <laughs> capital in excess of the premium and they'll ask you to store that in extremely safe you know very low risk assets so you can't do that and invest it in you know a ton of startups for example because mm-hmm. they want to know mm-hmm. that if things go uh, um, if things get tricky uh, that that you're going to have uh, enough money and so for the most part it doesn't I mean you know if you, a small insurance company nowadays will have a billion dollar balance sheet right you know, not a super yeah. small one, but, you know, a mid-sized one will have a billion-dollar balance sheet. Um, uh, and that will be predominantly in things like T-bills, right? Because you can't put a billion dollars in a bank account. You've got to go buy a ton of government bonds and those sorts of things. And so insurers are having to work really hard just to not lose money right now, yeah, right? Just yeah. on their assets. And how, how has, so we're now in, in April 2021. COVID is about a year and a couple months old. Has COVID... Uh, Got, ha, have any insurance companies gone bankrupt from COVID or how is, I mean, this is like, I would imagine the typical model for insurance companies is, is able to handle fluctuations here and there, a rocket explodes or something. But when something so systemic changes, does that just flip the model for yeah. many of these companies or? Yeah, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head, Mike. I think it's totally flipped the model, right? And I think, you know, that one of the worst things is pandemics, people know about pandemics creating a huge systemic risk, but they're very, what they call like catastrophic events. So they, you know, they're very, very low frequency. They don't happen very often. And when they do, they're very, very high severity. So they're very hard to model. And there are no models out there that have factored these things in, you know, well. And quite frankly, it's just hard to factor those things in well. Right. So, uh, that's not necessarily a failing in any individual insurer. So it has split the model. There are lots of insurance companies, not that many you're hearing going bankrupt, but definitely a lot of them having big capital calls, right? Yeah. Having their capital yeah. bases deteriorated. I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, this pandemic is just going to take, you know, probably years to unwind and decades to understand financially. Uh, and I think there's just a huge cloud hanging over lots of the insurance market. But you know, the way the financial sector works is when there's uncertainty, people want to seize on it. And there's new capital coming in without the legacy of, you know, on the old, old risks. It's a finite, it's a fascinating time, you know, financially generally, but for the insurance market, I mean, we know, you know, cause we insure lots of these new companies coming in, you know, there's, I think 11 billion or $12 billion of new capital coming in going, Oh, those old insurers are going to have a tough time. Let's get, let's go at it. Prices are going to go up. Why don't we get involved? Hmm. Interesting. So it's like, uh, it's almost like the, not the death, but the, the stagnation or the volatility creates opportunities for new. Does that, does that, I would imagine some insurance companies can't pay out the calls that they get. Um, in situations when that happens, does that mean the, the policyholder, the person paying the premiums or the company, does that typically mean they're just out of luck? I mean, if an insurance company says, Hey, sorry, we, you know, we, we don't have any money left. Uh, we're declaring bankruptcy. Is that how things typically go? Yeah, it's extremely rare that you will mm. see a policyholder not get paid out. Uh, I think if insurers get bankrupt, the insurance value chain, again, it's not very well known, but there's a huge, a huge uh, complex value chain where insurers will also buy insurance. Right? Lots mm. of people don't know this, that insurers buy reinsurance and reinsurers buy insurance called retrocession. 
right? And, wow. you know, it's this wild market where risk is, insurance is about managing risk and risk is transferred, like, you know, like in any financial sector, it's transferred in very complex ways. So insurance companies who make huge losses will usually pass their losses on to reinsurers. And these reinsurers, you know, you might have heard of them, you know, like Swiss Re, you know, in Switzerland and Bermuda, they have massive balance sheets, they've got incredibly regulatory strong capital, and they're able to, you know, they're able to give the it's a contractual, but a helping hand, right, to look to help the, the the main insurance company. So, you know, if insurance companies do go bankrupt, you know, and you hear about that, you know, um, not from for a really long time, but occasionally they do. The regulators will do something to make sure that the insurance mm. uh, that that the policyholders get paid. Uh, but theoretically, yeah, if they go bust, there's no money left, no capital, <laughs> all the capital burnt through. Yeah, uh, it's it's, yeah. it's uh, dreary times. But we're not there right now. Yeah, we're not there. Yeah, I would imagine I would imagine it would take it would take a covid on top of a you know, maybe a, a little meteor uh with a, <laughs> some yeah, sort of exponentially impactful thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so uh, what else did you learn? What else what do you, what else uh I'm almost I I could ask you five different questions, but I want maybe you you tell me what's what's interesting about this sector that most people don't realize. Yeah. So the the way I like to talk about this is I think it's a very well kept secret, this sector. And I think the biggest thing about it is the world is creating more risk, new types of risk, right? That it knows how to handle. And most of this risk is uninsured at the moment. Yeah. If you think, you know, the, the, the famous cliched example is about how uh, you, you go back even, I don't know, more than 20 years, maybe 50 years. And most of the assets on balance sheets were tangible. Yeah. Mm. They were physical assets that you could very comfortably itemize, analyze, and insure and manage the risk, right? If you have a, a factory, you can buy insurance, you can do a stock take, and you can work out how much the value of these things is, the market value. Nowadays, you know, most of the assets, you know, these huge tech companies take the rise of high tech, right? We just call it the big technology companies. Their assets are all intangible. And they're mm. just so hard to insure. And I think, you know, the simple fact of the matter is that these risks are things that people want to insure. They want to protect, right? But how do you insure Airbnb when it doesn't own its homes that people are, are renting? How do you insure Uber when the drivers, you know, when Uber doesn't actually own the taxis? Um, and so we've got new changing emerging forms of risk, right? And may, those examples are probably easy to reconcile because Airbnb, you can buy, you, nowadays, renters can buy Airbnb insurance for risks they rent out to buy Airbnb and Ubers can buy, you know, gig economy insurance policies. Um, and that would be a situation of, the, of like, uh, like if, if you rent an Airbnb and or if you have a house and you rent out your place to an Airbnb and your house gets, you know, $50,000 worth of damage, uh, that that could be covered by Airbnb and you would pay for that by a sliver of the Airbnb fee would go to that policy, right? That's, I would imagine how they do it. Is that for, for, yeah. for example, or, you know, they may, you, you, you may have, uh, Airbnb, you, you know, probably what's happening now is that the, the tr- traditional homeowners insurance will be saying, you know, we'll sell you an Airbnb policy, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and, and we'll sell you, and maybe Airbnb will do like a base cover or we'll sell you an excess cover, you know, in case you've got some really nice things in your house and Airbnb cover the first $10,000 or something, but we need to cover if you want to buy $50,000 for, you know, for your fancy stereo or something like that. Um, but, you know, a few years ago, insurers were like, Airbnb, no way, we're not insuring you. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of risks were uninsured. And, you know, those are the easy ones. Those are the easy ones to rationalize. You know, we think about cyber risk. That's the big one. It's the topic of the, mm-hmm. of the day, right? Cyber risk is just so unknown. It's an, it's a new, it's a new, uh, um, type of class of insurance. This is a, a prime example of specialty insurance, right? You can buy risk. You can buy, um, uh, an insurance policy against getting hacked, against your data being breached. You, you can buy, uh, insurance against, property damage that's, uh, um, uh, or sorry, against your business being interrupted that's not caused by property damage. Yeah. So mm. like what happens if someone hacks your a factory and gets all the sprinklers off and it floods, mm. right? Wow. You know, these are, we're seeing weird, weird and wonderful risks that are, are absolutely present and need to be captured. And it's, it's going to be, it's a huge opportunity for the financial sector. Do you, how, how far out do they, you said they need to be captured. I'm thinking about risk. I think of it like, I mean, this is with no actuarial education. So tell me, enlighten me. But I would imagine that the, the more, the longer period of time you have and the more data sets you have. So like car accidents are very easy to predict the risk, risk for because nothing's really changing in the, in the market. People are still driving the same roads, the same cars, same speed. And it's fairly predictable over time. You know, maybe we have some something like you know earthquakes hit Boston and cause a ton of earth uh, car accidents, but it's it doesn't seem like that that area of risk assessment would change. And then you have that's the most predictable. On the other end of the spectrum, there are things like um, you know how do you, cyber risk is a good example, but you can even go farther out, like uh, a solar flare risk or something, where we really yeah, have sure. or climate change related to things. Some some things that are so existentially large and infrequent, but they, they do happen. They affect everything. Are those obviously the more predictable risk is easy to assess and and mm. create policies for? How far out is reasonable to go from a high level? I mean, do we should we even be thinking about things that are existential and high level, or where do you draw the line as to what's even worth? creating policy around. Yeah, it's a really great question. I think, you know, some of those examples you gave, I think, you know, uh, where the insurance company, where the, um, uh, where corporations run out, the government is broadly, you know, de facto Mm. responsible. Right. And I think you'll see Mm -hmm. things like solar flare and those sorts of risks just being excluded on insurance policies because there's just no data. You know, you, you don't even have the science to form an opinion on those sorts of things. Don't they call that the, uh, don't they call that the act of God? They're the, the act of uh, God, an act of God, right? It's a, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, insurers like to go after acts of God. You know, hurricanes, bushfires, earthquakes. These things are, you know, are, are, of that seven hundred billion, a huge amount of it is uh, insurance against earthquakes and hurricanes, right? You know, Florida. Floridian yeah. homes, they, they buy a lot of insurance and there's, you know, literally billions of dollars, probably hundreds of billions of dollars of, of science that goes into, um, and technology that goes into modeling the impact of hurricanes. So I think your question is a really good one. It's a hard one to answer. I think you see events that are foreseeable, you know, um, based on, you know, uh, if you could go back in time and look over history and say, okay, we've got enough data to have some sort of understanding of the science and, you know, the, the frequency, the occurrence of these events is high enough for us to have some sort of opinion. Um, uh, you will see, you know, the insurers want to, you know, insurers, their raison d'etre is to sell insurance policies and, and pay claims. So they want to insure things, but you'll see people draw the line at the really, like you say, the really existential stuff, the stuff that's so systemic, you know, that stuff um, uh, tends to um, just be yeah. uninsured or, you know, government covers. 
Yeah. I heard a, a, an interesting um, uh, piece on, well, let me ask you this question just to hear your response. What, uh, like, I'm trying to think how I want to ask this. In, in Norway, they have dikes to prevent flooding. So if there's a, f- mm. a flood that happens, they have these, you know, these infrastructure, these dikes that prevent flooding. And they model it at a one out of every thousand year, one out of every thousand yeah. year storm will get through the dikes. It might even yeah. be more yeah. than that, but it's like, it's an enormous amount of time. And in New Orleans, yeah. in the US, in New Orleans, they modeled it at a one out of every hundred year storm. And even then, yeah. a lot of the money that went towards the infrastructure was went into politicians and it's, it's one of the most corrupt states in the United States. And people, I've heard somebody ask, uh, what, what was the reason that New Orleans flooded? And you'd say, oh, well, they had a hurricane. Uh, or would you say it's corruption? And uh, uh, like, did they flood because of corruption or did they flood because of hurricane? And it's that kind of perspective that's like, well, the reason why these some of these natural disasters are happening is because as a society or as a leadership in society, we're not properly attending to the the required contribution to prevent the risk. So, yeah. so there, there's, there's this false sense of security. And I just found that perspective kind of fascinating that it's like, it's not just about the percentage of chance that the hurricane hits, uh, but it's about the, the way that politicians and, and people act um, in the city to prevent things like that happening. You know, is there, is there an honest attempt yeah. or are people just siphoning off money and cutting corners? I just found that kind of interesting. I don't know if you've seen that in other places throughout the industry or if that psychological effect is yeah. Real. I mean, no, I think it's very real. I mean, I think there's always a massive interface between, you know, uh, prevention, mitigation and risk transfer, right? Where in so many sectors. And I think, you know, it's a complex set, you know, in insurance, they call it moral hazard where parties, it's not quite the right term here. Moral hazard is where parties act in such a way as to make the likelihood of a claim happening more. But, um, you know, I think there is that risk whenever you're providing a mechanism of risk transfer, which is what insurance is, that, you know, the prevention measures change the amount of risk that exists to be transferred, right? And I think your example there where, you know, you set the dikes at the wrong height because of corruption or incompetence or anything else, and that event goes from a 1 in 100 to a 1 in 50, yeah, and you're pricing it at a 1 in 100, and it's just way more likely. You've got real problems there, and yeah. I think your point's very valid. And, uh, you know, it, ex- it exists everywhere. You know, a really good example of this, it, it, mercifully in the other direction, is the airline industry, where for a really long time, um, a- the airline industry has been getting safer. And it's been hard to predict and understand how the impact of the safety has been in- impacting policy. So, you know, the airline industry is a, a fascinating one as an industry as a whole. You know, one of those industries where so much value is created and so little is captured by the uh, by the industry, right? You know, you see all of these unfortunate play. Uh, yeah. Uh, air- Why is that? That seems struggling. So true. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a separate. Is uh, that a, completely a whole podcast on that? Or what's the- I think, you know, what's really amazing is I think, yeah. I think there's a combination of things. I think you've got this really amazing market that has created substitutes. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I don't know how much you're a startup guy. You look at Peter Thiel who talks about, you know, the, 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 the best competition is no competition at all. Right. And you've got the complete opposite example in the airline industry where, you know, quite frankly, you know, okay, subject to loyalty programs and points, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, for the bulk of people buying, uh, 
uh, uh, plane tickets. They're complete substitutes and there's no loyalty there at all. And then I think you've got huge optimism. You've got optimism in planning and optimism in, you know, things. I think that's probably a good thing. It's good to have optimism in an industry, but, you know, it leads to this perfect storm of people thinking that they can do things differently and not really being able to. And then it becomes a race to the bottom on price, right? Um, mm. uh, and I think, yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, it's difficult. But then you look at that industry there and you think, you know, it's got safer. And so insurance actually, you know, <coughs> you've got this complex uh, perspective. But has it been too expensive? You know, those events you're pricing at a one in a hundred, actually a one in 200. Yeah. Um, I don't think there are that many airline insurers out there who say their yeah. insurance premiums are, 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 are too low. But I think that um, the same thing applied to the insurance companies probably go, this isn't a, a good deal either. So it's a fascinating one, fascinating question. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of seems like from a high level that the the airline industry is is uh, is slightly higher level than infrastructure. You know, it's like I have pipes yeah. that run through the city. We have streets, we have lights, we have electricity. Um, you know, you have buses that actually are, and subways that that's actual you know collective socialized uh, uh, infrastructure. We all pay taxes towards it, and we get subsidized rates on the the fares. And then airlines are kind of they're like pseudo commoditized infrastructure. So, mm. you know, you pay taxes that go to the airline, you give up premium space in the city. Um, yeah. So it does, it feels like it just, it need. it's kind of past its prime. Like it needs the next wave, which is probably going to yeah. be space travel. You know, we can just buzz around the world in a, in a, in a rocket ship, which doesn't seem that far away now. <laughs> and then that'll be where the yeah. opportunity goes. It kind of has to like, th- I would imagine there's, there's, there's periods of time where all the value, most of the value creation is created. I realized, and then it kind of converges to the point where it's a commodity. And then you have a leapfrog where the next wave yeah. of technology occurs. And then, you know, the same cycle happens. It feels like crypto would be the scenario there. You can almost pick every industry and see how that's happening. Um, yeah. I generally yeah. think that most of the world has uh, too strong, like our, our governments have too strong a grip on our incumbent industries, like transportation, real estate, uh, banking, and that, uh, much of the innovation that we're starting to see is happening at the the edge cases of the of the regulation. Um, yeah. But simply removing regulation in many cases would also help tremendously. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got this really yeah. fascinating thing. Uh, you know, when you when you think about regulation and how unregulated the tech sector is. And how the tech sector, for lots of reasons, right, the zero marginal cost and, you know, the ultra high leverage you get from code and working in the bits rather than the atom space, you know, how just very rapidly tech has, you know, tech's naturally just got so big. Um, I think it's really interesting to look at how relatively how much regulation there are on sectors, which are so much smaller, right? Uh, and actually it's really fascinating mm. when you look at that mm. and you look at the lack of regulation in sectors that are so massive and then this huge greedy, well, greedy is not the right word. I mean, greedy in the mathematical sense rather than greedy in the kind of avaricious sense. But, you know, you've got this naturally very, very strict regulation on things that can be regulated. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting dichotomy, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Do you think there's, uh, how, how closely have you been following the crypto world? <laughs> Yeah, really closely. Uh, in typical startup founder style, I wanted to buy in to crypto at the start of the year. And I was just like, I'm just going to sort that out. I even got a hardware wallet. I mean, as a software engineer by training, I probably should have just 
got on Revolut or something like that. I just bought some. But instead, I was like, right, I'm going to go get a hardware wallet. I'm going to keep it super secure. And then didn't do anything about it. And it's 5X since then. And in typical style, I've been following it. I, I'm fascinated by it. I've been fascinated by it since people have been mining it on their GPUs at home. You know, I'm a software engineer, as I say, amateur and enthusiastic software engineer for the last 15, you know, longer than that, 18 years of my life. Um, and yeah, it's a fascinating technology and fascinating the way it's just barging its way into everyone's, you know, life, you know, NFTs, the crypto economy, uh, the whole thing. I, I, I think it's, yeah, I only wish I'd bought the damn Bitcoin at the start of the year. How about insurance? <laughs> yeah. Well, there'll always be new opportunities. There'll always be another Bitcoin. <laughs> have you seen uh have you seen any insurance crypto? I haven't uh, specifically dove deep into this, but Yeah, I was just reading an article about that yesterday about crypto. I, I think the insurance sector is incredibly scared of crypto. It's a really regulated sector. And it's a sector, you know, the the fascinating thing about insurance, and I think this is one of those things that a lot of people don't know. Uh, uh, and you've got this really interesting way insurance is regulated, right? And the way insurance is regulated is a little bit different from the, the way that the banking sector is re regulated to my understanding. And I have a very limited, you know, understanding of the banking sector being very honest. But, you know, if you want to manage risk, the way risk and return are, are, are managed in, in the uh, the banking sector is, you know, if something is risky, you have a certain amount of capital. You, you have, a, you have a, a, I've got to get the order of my words right. You have a risk-adjusted return on capital, right? So if you've got a hundred dollars of an asset that's really risky, you expect a very high percentage return on that hundred dollars. Um, the way the insurance sector works is you have a return. Generally, the way insurance companies provide a return to shareholders is they provide a return on the risk-adjusted capital. So if you have an insurance risk that's really risky, you have to hold more capital. Yeah. So, uh, and that, uh, so let's say you want to insure, mm. um, you want to insure a house, right? And that house is worth a million dollars, but that house is incredibly low risk. It's not very likely to burn down or any of the, the perils is a technical, term, any of the things that could cause that house to have an insurance loss are very low. The amount of capital that you have to put aside to look after that, uh, the, to cover that house is different. It's a different number than if that house were really, really risky. Um, and you end up in a, a really interesting situation where if something is risky in insurance, you've got to put more money aside to actually pr to protect policyholders. And I think the crypto economy is so volatile. You've got such complex intersection between the volatility of the asset as, you know, the jury is completely out, right, about whether Bitcoin is a store of value, a mechanism of uh, a, a currency transaction. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's days as a currency. I, I don't know. You'll give me the schooling here. It feels like it's days as a currency right now. I feel very unlikely. Um, uh, but you've got, it's just such a complex asset that's so hard to, to you know, to understand as something to insure or something to use as an asset to back an insured policy. I think that, you know, I think it'll be a long time before we see anyone doing anything remotely interesting, unfortunately, in, in the sector. Mm. Um, uh, but maybe, you know, uh, well, uh, maybe I wonder, I'm not, I, I tend to think I'm it's enthusiastic enough. Yeah. Well, where would, yeah, a couple thoughts on that. One, I think it's complicated if you try to take Bitcoin as it is and shove it into a, uh, a, a legacy regulatory classification. You know, we use words like currency and store of value, 
but really what the, what's the difference, right? It's, it's, you know, you can, tr- anything you can trade, you can use the store value. So they're kind of the same thing. We just use them in different regulatory classifications. Um, so I think that yeah, is point. in some level, it's uh, it's like uh, we're just going to decide, and maybe we'll make a new classification and some blend of those. I think the the area where I I would I would tune into on this uh, topic of insurance and crypto is what's the thing that disrupts the incumbent insurance companies? Like what crypto experience? Which I could imagine that you know I contribute money into a on chain uh, insurance platform, and that this this platform allows people to make policy claims so you, you can you can buy a policy from the uh from the blockchain from the organization and then you have a way of validating that the thing happened that you're owed and then there's a collective voting mechanism where people can vote to say okay this you know uh you know mike actually did have his car broken into or, or you know whatever the thing was that i'm claiming happened and then there's votes those votes get validated and then the the money gets unlocked to to me in that case. It's it's effectively I feel like crypto generally mimics initially it, initially it will mimic what's happening in the, in the off chain world, and then mm. once that happens, you'll st- the the pathways to innovate and make it better become obvious. It's like, well, do we really need you know all the actuarial? Can it can it be a marketplace of sorts where you you just mm. allow people to you know make make their own decentralized decisions. And then there's kind of a, a market rate for different types of things you want insured. Um, and people effectively take on, take on those policies independently. So instead of aggregating all the pools, a uh, pool of money into one centralized bank, could it be, you know, I contribute $27 into a policy that has a billion in it. And that policy is, uh, you know, what everyone uses. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, one, you know, it's a, it's a thought I, I, I have to dive in to see what's, actually existing in the market as far as crypto uh you know tools but <laughs> regardless it will be a while before the old incumbents you know fizzle out for sure yeah i think you know uh, you can probably educate me here you know talking about it sounds like a smart contract on a on a blockchain of sorts right um is that the sort of thing you're alluding to there yeah, so it would be uh say we had for simplistic example, say you had a thousand people each with a account on a blockchain and e- and there was yeah. a smart contract that validated their uh a claim. So if somebody had a claim, you know, this could I could imagine a few different ways. One of the ways, one simple way you could do would be to have a a uh, a policyholder make a claim. People who hold keys and accounts in the blockchain would validate the legitimacy of the off off chain thing that happened in real life action that you're insuring for. And then that becomes, uh, uh, validated across the network. So everyone says, okay, Emery really had his car broken into or whatever the thing is. Mm -mm -mm. And then from there you have a, a release of funds that go to your account, your wallet. So there's like a critical mass of voters that have to vote and approve that. But once they do, then it gets unleashed, unlocked. Um, so it's kind of what happens, yeah. right? There's some in an insurance yeah. policy, yeah, somebody yeah. it's, but it's centralized. Somebody makes the approval to send out the money. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, I totally agree with you. And I think you're, you're bang on there. You know, lots has been talked about the distributed ledger and consensus, you know, uh, um, uh, and improved consensus mechanisms, uh, in insurance. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the insurance sector will muddle its way there. I think, 
you know, what we need is someone to come, you know, it needs someone to take a big world of cash and implement it at scale. Um, and I think, you know, it's not infeasible with the market mm. looking the way it is now that we'll see something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you're describing there is absolutely, you know, a fundamentally lower friction <coughs> uh, way of operating, right? And I think you're absolutely right. I, and there's been loads of talk about this, about mm-hmm. smart contract and the blockchain for, you know, probably close to a decade now. But, you know, the insurance sector, yeah, it, it, it is remarkable um, uh, how long it takes to muddle these things through. I suppose, you know, the nature of regulated entities is such as such. But I think you're right. I think that that, you know, that sort of thing, it's it's got to be inevitable, right? When you think about the analogies between what's being done now and what mm-hmm. can be enabled by modern technology, I'm with you there. Yeah, maybe your next product that you guys roll out. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You'd, you'd have a unique access point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so tell me more. What's uh, So you've got the podcast, you've got this company. The company, how, how many people or what's, uh, I didn't ask earlier, but what's the scope of where you guys are, fundraising sure thing- or revenue or employees? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So, you know, we are um, uh, not VC-backed at the moment. Um, You know, we're probably around Series A stage. Um, We are, we're a small company. We're we're doing great. You know, we're on track to make, you know, $10 million of revenue this year, uh, there or thereabouts. Uh, We've got 20 people. A bunch of small, a small team of hardworking uh, enthusiasts about data and technology. Uh, London-based with a few uh, uh, engineers out in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, definitely big growth plans over the next couple of years. So talking, you know, uh, uh, about, you know, big plans to move. At, uh, one of our biggest clients now is in the States. You can expect to see HX scale its product and its team, you know, to increase our offerings uh, in the pricing analytics space, uh, particularly to clients out uh, in America. So hopefully you'll see some sort of HXHQ, as we call it, our office uh, uh, out in the States at some point soon. So loads of hiring. We're always looking for engineers. If you're an enthusiast about the intersection of maths, uh, data, and technology, you should definitely come and chat to us because it's what we do. Uh, uh, and we, uh, yeah, it's our, you know, our, 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 our passion uh, uh, and we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll be, you know, once the world becomes a bit more three-dimensional, you, you might have a few HXs out in the out in America. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you should uh, absolutely roll out. We have a lot of risks over here that <laughs> need to be taken care of. You, um, you definitely do. And uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, some folks you're looking for. Uh, I want to ask you two questions. Where where can people find you, and then what would be helpful for you? You mentioned um, you're looking for some folks. Uh, you're hiring now, or are you raising money? Hiring? Um, yeah. Customers? So you know we're not far. Yeah. So you know not far away from growth. Uh, you know out of uh, uh, out of our, you know we're a profitable business. I know that's not fashionable for a startups, but uh, but we are. So we're growing out of retained earnings, <laughs> but also potential uh, potential uh, uh, fundraise opportunity but really uh, what we're looking for so you know people can find us you know we've got a, a relatively unique uh, 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 name hyperexponential.com we've got a, a new website that launched this week in fact so you can check us out there reach out you can find me uh, uh, on LinkedIn uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, um, my, my my handle is solar yellow I won't go into the origin story for that right now but uh, uh, you can find mm-hmm. me there uh, and yeah you know if you check out startup dad's podcast you'll find lots Lots of ways to hear about HX uh, 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 and yeah, what we're doing. 
Awesome. Awesome. And are you uh, hiring people now? Uh, engineers? We are. Or, yeah. Uh, we're hi- yeah, we are. Uh, yeah, we're hiring yeah. in anger. You know, pretty much any sort of engineer, if you're an enthusiastic front-end engineer, back-end engineer, into infrastructure, you know, we've got a class-leading infrastructure as code infrastructure on demand stack. So if you're into that sort of thing, if you're like, if you're, you know, a data scientist or actuary and you want to apply it to the weird, the weirdest and most wonderful data sets, help clients solve weird and wonderful problems using great technology, uh, come find us. Yeah, we're hiring for, you know, we're not that fussy about technology, you know, we're just nice. great engineers. So, you know, uh, all we're looking for uh, is enthusiasts who, who love what they do. Uh, yeah, come and find us. Awesome. Emery, it's been a real pleasure. I enjoyed talking with you and I, uh, yeah, we're really excited to check out uh, Startup Dad's podcast. That, that definitely resonates with me. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having us on the show. Maybe we'll have you on the show in a couple of weeks, a couple of months time. Sounds, sounds great, man. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.